Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Welcome back, fans, to another episode of Spectacular Radio. I am joined, as usual, by Mr. Greg Wiseman, the supervising producer and story editor of the show. Hi. And um, this is also our first recording since uh, this year. This fan, the fan panel that you all recently heard was actually recorded back in October, when the world seemed like a simpler and more pleasant place. But I would also like to open the show up with um, paying respects to Mr. Miguel Ferrer, who passed away uh, a couple months ago. And... Um, he was the voice of Silvermane. We'll be talking about that later on the show. And a fantastic actor, a fantastic voice actor. Greg, I believe you've worked with him quite a bit. Uh, yeah, both on Spider-Man and uh, Young Justice, too. Yeah, his Vandal Savage was just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to... Definitely, definitely. I think not. You see, Starotech does not reprogram the mind. It offers us remote control of it. We know exactly who's infected and who's not, and none of you are! But that is easily rectified. <laughs> 50,000 years of life, and nothing ever troubled me as much as the founding of the Justice League. Dedicated to maintaining society's calcified status quo, the League would protect mankind from disaster, crime, tragedy of any kind. Had you never heard of the survival of the fittest? In essence, you heroes sought to protect humanity from its own glorious evolution. As such, you forced my more enlightened colleagues and myself to organize a response. We created or co-opted networks of operatives, placed key individuals in key positions, made certain we were on the cutting edge of all new technologies, genetic engineering, biochemical engineering, robotics, nanorobotics, even techno-sorcery, not to mention every conceivable method of mind control. Cold hard science and a little misdirection. And now you champions of stagnation have become our agents of change, forcing the human race to evolve on a more advanced schedule, allowing the Earth to take its rightful place at the center of the cosmos. And so we're now talking about the uh, second episode of the second season, Destructive Testing, featuring Craven the Hunter. And we'll talk about him shortly. I uh, really like that opening scene and 
Africa. You would think, I mean, because we've never seen a background like this on a show before or after. If you were just flipping channels, you wouldn't think you were watching a Spider-Man show. No, and that was kind of the idea, you know, to to really sort of pull out of our the audience comfort zone and, you know, almost... Uh, can't even think of anything that isn't set in New York other than this one teaser. Um, but just to give it a very different taste, a very different flavor. Um, and uh, there's a lot of great, great stuff in this teaser. And, and you know, I watched it again last night, not just the teaser, but the whole episode. And um, uh, I love how Craven is dressed before he sort of strips down to deal with the rhino. Um, I love the introduction of Goliadkin and Calypso, um, and, uh, you know, the little sort of minor fake out, because it lasts for only a couple seconds, where you think, um, having just taken down a actual rhino, that he's going to Manhattan to deal with Rhino, the supervillain. Um, and then, you know, Two seconds later, we see, no, no, Rhino's on the back of the pages he's looking at. He's looking at Spider-Man. And so it's just a a really fun little sequence there. I do wish the cliff was more sheer that they nearly go off of. I mean, I guess it's sheer enough, um, but uh, and it's certainly high enough, but I wish it was sheer and not uh, sort of... uh, gradually sloping downward. It felt, it felt a little like that robbed a tiny bit of the feeling of danger from the moment, but uh, it's a minor point. Well, I thought the scene was very effective, and um, I suppose I was planning to bring him up a little bit later, but we can talk about him now. Craven, I'll be the first to admit, was never one of my favorite Spider-Man villains. Out of the lead Ditko villains, he was always lower tier for me, I mean, but I really enjoy this version of Craven, especially in the first half of the episode, I thought Eric Vespit did a fantastic job. You could almost feel... Uh, I mean, there was something noble feeling about him. And talking briefly about another show you did, I remember, and it struck me at The Gathering 1998, and I just saw this old videotape of it. Again, you mentioned that Craven was a very, 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 very loose inspiration for how you wanted Macbeth presented. I'm sorry, say again? I couldn't hear you. You mentioned that at the, at the 1998 Gathering, and I saw this on tape again recently, that... Craven was a uh, very loose inspiration for how you wanted Macbeth presented. I mean, obviously, Craven wasn't the inspiration for Macbeth, but you know what I mean. And I can sort of see that similar noble air here to him. Uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I can see it too. I don't remember saying that. I'm not saying I didn't. Um, I just don't remember. Uh, I mean, obviously, Macbeth, our gargoyles, Macbeth predates ours. Spider Man, Craven. Um, by quite some time uh, in terms of my actually doing anything with Craven, but obviously the Lee Ditko Craven predates our Macbeth by quite a bit. So it was just this idea of uh, this hunter uh, who has his own code and is uh, in it for the challenge. Um, he's bored and um, frustrated and everything's a little too easy for him because he's so damn good at what he does. Um, and so, you know, we had some fun with it. I, I, I definitely think that um, the early sequence with Spider-Man versus Kravinoff, um works better than the 
the later sequences, which are Spider-Man versus Kraven, the hunter, once he's been mutated. And I think part of that may be um, some feeling that a lot of fans have that we were sort of betraying the Kraven character. We took a little bit of inspiration from uh, Ultimate Spider-Man and that version of Kraven and tried to combine it with the classic version of Kraven to get something new and interesting. Um, but I also think the main reason is is that the animation in the first act is so much better than the animation in the third act. Um, so I feel like if we had had the same level of animation in the third act, um, people would have been a little more blown away by that fight and uh, have thought better of it. I do think that Eric's performance is as the character is fantastic, um, both the depth of his voice and his accent. He worked really hard on that. Eric is, uh, I know you know Greg, but I don't know if your audience knows, uh, was blind producer on Spectacular Spider-Man, um, but also acted on the side. And uh, so um, he, we cast him as, uh, as Raven, and uh, he just did a terrific job. Yeah, he did, and um, yeah, that mutation is one... I think that and Montana being a shocker are the only two really controversial things about the show. I mean, neither one of them ever bothered me. I mean, I, Montana is the shocker I always thought was cool, and like I said, Craven was not a sacred animal, pun not intended, character for me. I mean, the way, say, Green Goblin or Doc Ock are, so I was open to doing something different with him, and uh, I, I thought it worked. I mean, I can understand why it didn't work for some people, but... um. I do agree also the first fight sequence is better. It was just, not because of the mutation, like I said, the animation, and it was just so much more dynamic, seeing him use all these different weapons and methods of trickery that he would use in the jungle. And um, Although there's also part of me that watches this guy, and I'm thinking, even with, even before the mutation, he was cuckoo. I mean, he's does it occur to him that he's actually hunting a human being? Well, I... I think it's a fair question to ask um, in that first act as to whether or not he would have killed Spider-Man. Um, in other words, was killing the point? He doesn't kill the rhino in the teaser. Um, of course, that's not what the job is in the teaser, but I think it's debatable as to what he wanted to do was to prove he could best Spider-Man. That's clear. Whether that Whether proof requires killing... I'm not sure. I mean, you know, he certainly respects Gulyadkin, and he didn't kill Gulyadkin, you know. Um, so what does it take to prove to Craven in round one that he can beat this guy? Does it actually have to come down to killing? He never says that. That's the implication. But um, I wonder if that implication comes from what baggage we all bring to it as opposed to um, what's on screen, because I was watching it last night again, and and I think it's it's definitely ambiguous as to whether or not he would have killed Spidey. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't really get ambiguity from it. When he said it would all be over, when he was pointing a dart at him, I thought he was about to finish him off. Well, but the dart, the dart is paralytic. It's not deadly poison. Um, so it... You know, if he had fired that dart and successfully done it and paralyzed Spider-Man, would he have tapped him on the head or put a knife to his throat and said, okay, I could if I wanted to, but now that I've proven I have, I don't need to. I'm not saying he would have. I, I, like, uh, uh, I like the idea that 
he that we don't know. Like I said, like you said, it's probably baggage that, it's, that we're bringing into it because everyone does this with these adaptations of these iconic characters, especially with these mythologies we know so well. But I have a feeling the master planner probably thought that uh, Craven would have killed him. Well, I think things change in the second half of the episode. I think um, having been sort of not just defeated but sort of humiliated as well, I think Craven's attitude is different uh, in the second half. Um, so I make a distinction between the first battle and the second battle. Because um, I do think he's trying to kill him in the second battle. But I don't think it's as clear that that's what he's trying to do in the first one. But still, it was a great battle. There was just so much, there were so many great lines, to, like from Mother Russia by way of Mother Africa to Mothers. And so that line still makes me laugh to this day. Yeah, I, I think Matt Wayne wrote the episode, and I think he did some really great quippage in it. There's a bunch of terrific lines all the way through it. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, Peter's a lot of fun in the episode, both when he's sort of in control of things and when he's out of control of things. He's still got a bunch of great sort of quips throughout Indeed, and uh, moving on to a different topic, because this is the only time in the series we're, we're going to get to discuss her, I thought Calypso was wonderful, and she was never a character I cared about prior to this. I mean, there, there was a certain air about her, the drums, the implied use of magic. She was really creepy. Yeah, I mean, that was fun. You know, we had long-term plans for Calypso that obviously we never got to do, but... Um... Uh, yeah, it was interesting because it was the first time we were sort of even hinting that magic might exist in this universe. Um, up to this point, you know, we've certainly done the science fiction route, but we haven't done the fantasy, the magic route at all, and yet there's definitely an implication uh, that, you know, you hear those drums and she shows up out of nowhere. You hear those drums and he vanishes into nowhere. You know, it, it's like She's got something going on here that's beyond um, all the mutagens and technology that we've done with every other villain. And so that was interesting to me. Uh, and I thought, again, uh, another great performance. We always had great performances. Um, this one by Angela Bryant as uh, Calypso. Yeah. I mean, the only other place she shows up, and it technically doesn't count, was that radio play, and she was doing more... Uh open magic there with the lizard, as I recall. Yeah. But again, not canon, so, um, and, uh, of course, Gulyodkin was a nice surprise. I think he came from the 90s comics. He was the, uh, pet of Craven's son, but it was hilarious to see Craven walking him like a dog across Manhattan. Yeah, I mean, for me, the funnest scene is to see Craven and Gulyodkin and Jonah's office and Jonah reading of the right act while everyone else is behind their desk. Yeah. Jonah's, like, Jonah's like wagging his finger at the guy. It's all a montage, so we don't hear any sound. But um, And yet you can hear Darren time, Norris anyway. Yeah, by this time in the series, we've still got a, you know, Jonah is so crystal clear in this series, I think, that, you know, you just can all but hear what he's saying and, it's hilarious. I love that bit. <laughs> it's wonderful. It, it is. And uh, 
Speaking of wonderful, we talked about him briefly last episode. I love Miles Warren in this episode. I mean, he's so manipulative. He knows how to take advantage of a situation. Even Craven seems to respect it. And, uh, and it's kind of weird. I actually thought that very real-looking gun he had in his back pocket was one of the creepier shots of a weapon in the entire series. There's just something about that uh, shot. Yeah, you know, I mean, in other words, Miles is not an idiot, so um, uh, we felt like he'd have his own preparations if what he needed. Um, but Miles was fun in this episode. I mean, his conversation with Connors, um, his acknowledging that he wasn't going to go forward and then clearly does anyway. Um, Craven jumps to the wrong conclusion about how Spider-Man was created. Miles has no hesitation about taking credit for creating Spider-Man and giving him his powers um, and uh, taking money and all that sort of thing. It, you know, Miles is a lot of uh, fun for us here. Um, and, it, and the key thing is, is that to sort of present, you know, you've got the sort of benevolent Connors who turns into a monster, and now we're saying, yeah, but who's the real monster in the lab now? Definitely. And Miles was even, I mean, obviously I'm bringing things from the comics. I know exactly who Miles Warren is and what he ends up doing. And the way this is played, and I'm not asking for spoilers, because I know you're not going to give any, but um. I could see the Jackal going one of two ways. For a while, he wore a fursuit in the comics, and then he went back to a fursuit in more recent years. And then there was a period in the 90s where he actually genetically enhanced himself into a half-Jackal, half-human being. So, I mean, I look at this, and I'm thinking he could go either way. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not going to give spoilers, but I, you know, I, obviously... Anything that was in the comics was fair game, so um, you know it's all—it's uh, all possible. It always is, but yeah, it's just such a great sequence, and um, I just love that smile that Craven gives him when after that because he—he he respects this, this guy for standing up to him. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much Craven respects Miles, but. Um, uh, I, I just think those are two guys who uh, who don't get each other. You know, um, Miles probably gets Craven a little more than Craven gets Miles, but even they're not much. You know, they're just their mindsets and their goals and everything are so antithetical to each other that um, they don't connect really. And yet, at the same time, they work together to create this new Superboy um, and you know, making use of existing technology again because that was one of our goals was to not make it seem like um, creating supervillains was really easy, that there were a few methods to do it and a few scientists capable of it. And so the fact that Miles was building off of the lizard, uh, the discoveries that um, Kurt Connors made when the lizard was created, that was, again, us trying to sort of create a more cohesive a coherent universe and not just have everything be sort of random events. In, indeed. That and also, Miles speaks to, looks at Kurt's thing and says, oh, you know, you're missing an ingredient here. You're missing electricity, which, of course, was the key. You know, it was that one vial of Kurt's formula that 
got accidentally zapped by Electro in Episode 2 that made it work and made it turn him into the lizard. But the thing is, is that Miles can sort of look at Kurt's formula and go, oh, well, here's the problem with your research. You didn't use any electricity. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, of course, we know that, well, electricity got used, and so the research worked, but we know that that means that you know, Miles has a handle on how to actually make this stuff happen. Indeed. Also, big picture-wise, I know Craven has nothing to do with this, but when he was looking through Connor's notes, I have to wonder, is uh, Warren already in on and going forward with Osborne's little conspiracy that will culminate in the latter half of the season? I don't think so. Not yet. Seems too early, but... We know, I mean, if you've seen the show, you know it's coming, but I don't think it's started yet. Yeah, because I was wondering about it. He seemed very interested in uh, Kurt's, and he doesn't need to be working for Osborne to be interested in Kurt's formula. Any scientist, benevolent or malevolent, I think would be. Yeah, and, you know, he's definitely interested in, you know, he takes it as far as he can take it without a test subject. So then, lo and behold, the test subject walks in the door, even if when... Kravinov's doing the walking. He doesn't realize that's what he is. Indeed. And I look at all this, and I can't help but thinking, Pete, you're lucky that you still look like a human being. Uh, yeah, that's true. I don't know if that was anything you guys had in mind, but... Uh, you know, we had long-term ideas for a lot of stuff based on all sorts of old Spidey comics and stuff like that, but... Um, that would have made bigger changes, but at least temporarily. But, uh, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and it's, and it's fun to play Pete. So, you, you know, you're reluctant to change him so much that his life as Pete becomes uh, impossible. You know, if, if he's the beast or uh, um, the thing, or the Hulk, you know, then his life as Pete becomes unrecognizable. And the idea, I think, for us is to, um, for the most part, to sort of give uh, this kid the problem of having two separate lives to deal with. And if you change him so much that he can't have the first life, then he's only dealing with one. And... Um, and Peter Parker is even more important to this mythos than Spider-Man, I would argue. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not about ranking things, but uh, but clearly it's important. I mean, this episode, you know, I think showcases one of the things that I think is really fun, which is that, you know, on one level, as much as Peter has deep-seated feelings and emotions and all this sort of stuff, on another level, he's a pure har hormonal lust monkey in this episode, you know, um, <laughs> into Gwen, and he wants to be with Gwen, and and yet, you know, when Liz puts an arm around him, when she kisses him on the cheek, when um, she calls and, and needs him, mm -hmm. um, he jumps because mm -hmm. she's hot, and, um, and, you know, she's gotten nicer, clearly, and, you know, and she's conflicted, too, because she's broken up with um, Flash, and yet she still cares about him. And 
you know, is at the hospital and all that sort of thing. And, um, and Pete wants to be there for her and also thinks better of Flash than he's even willing to admit to himself. There are a couple great lines that Matt wrote in here about, uh, you know, where he's rooting for Flash on the field and, um, and he's like, I can't believe I just said that. And then later he says something else positive about Flash. He said, I can't believe I just thought that. Um, and, you know, he doesn't want to think, well, Flash and anything like that. But the truth is, is that, you know, deep down he knows Flash isn't that bad a guy. And he certainly doesn't wish Flash ill. Um, but there's all sorts of great sort of Pete stuff in this episode that's really a lot of fun. Um and things, you know, little things that we followed up from previous episodes, like, okay, you know, in the last episode, he couldn't wear thermal underwear because the thermals he had were too thick and they didn't work under a spider suit. And now he's wear, wearing them, and but they have little hearts on them, you know, so. It's um, macho quotient. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so there's always complications for Peter. Nothing's ever simple. Um <laughs> But, he, but not just Liz and, and Gwen, there's also, you know, he gets off on his own little tangent, brief tangent, when he starts thinking about Black Cat, too. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just this idea that the kid is 16, and um, and let's be honest, the thing he wants most in life is probably sex. Not that he's ever had it and knows how good it is, but that's what he wants, you know, and that's what he's kind of desperate for, and uh, and he wouldn't even say that, you know, because he he wouldn't even want to believe that that's true. But you know, his his brain uh, isn't always cooperating, um, and so he's easily distractible, particularly uh, on the uh, girlfront. And uh, as Mary Jane's going to comment on shortly, um, and uh, so you know, there's Liz, uh, there's Gwen. There's Black Cat, and, you know, <laughs> to some extent, there's a question of opportunity, and it's not one of his better qualities, but it's, um, I think, believable and honest for a 16-year-old boy. I think so, too. I mean, I've seen people who say they don't quite understand Peter's mindset during all this. Like, why doesn't he just go for Gwen? And I have to wonder if any of these people actually actually remember being 16, yeah, you know, it's uh, it, one of the fun things for us was just constantly reminding ourselves uh, this is a kid. You know, yeah, his name is Spider-Man. In fact, the matter is, is he's not even 18 in, in our show. He's a kid. And that brings with it all sorts of um, additional complications that any grown-up Peter Parker would have. Um, and... Um, not that suddenly becoming a man means your hormones turn off, but at the same time, um, the, you know, a guy like Pete at age 16 has a lot less experience dealing with them and controlling them, frankly, and, and less maturity. So Pete's mature on a lot of levels, but not, on, not all of them. Yeah, I mean, like I said, and I find it, and again, this is me bringing out my Peter Mary Jane forever t-shirt the one he's not thinking about and zooming in on is the one that i personally believe he's eventually going to marry and i'm not asking for spoilers on that one either but just saying just an observation 
Okay. <laughs> the silent spoiler request, no comment. Yeah, I'm not giving that. I mean, you know I'm not. So. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I wasn't even asking for it, just an observation. <laughs> anyway, and like I said, I do love what you mentioned, the little hints of Peter's knowing that Flash is a decent person, and looking, in hindsight, I wonder if that was a hint of their old friendship, which we're going to discover a few episodes from now. Yeah, I mean, I always had that in mind, so, um, you know, and, and I know Peter, for all intents and purposes, is a decent guy, so, you know, Flash is a jerk to him, so he may spout some jerkisms back, but the fact of the matter is, is he doesn't want to see Peter hurt, and to be perfectly honest, Flash doesn't want to see Peter... Sorry, Peter doesn't want to see Flash hurt. Flash doesn't really want to see Peter hurt. Like, embarrassing him is one thing, but, you know, um, guys in the hospital, you know, we can be decent. Yeah. I mean, I noticed that the bullying was never really physical in this show outside of a few of a few water balloons. And, I mean, I know we, there were some scenes in the movies, but I don't really count those as I don't really feel the movies got Flash Thompson as a character, or at least just downplayed him to just a name in the background. Uh, yeah, I mean, Flash, uh, you know, I haven't seen many of the recent movies, but uh, in the Raimi films, Flash is barely in the first one and then not in the others, right? I mean... Uh, he was uh, briefly in Spider-Man 3, just at Harry Osborn's funeral. Not even, no dialogue, he was just there. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I mean, I under, and I understand why Flash wasn't considered a priority for those movies, but um, I'm glad he was a priority on this show, because this episode, I think, I mean, granted, it's all been building up, but this is the turning point, I think, or at least a, one turning point. Well, I, you know, we tried to make every episode a turning point, because we just wanted to constantly be shifting and, and um, uh, keeping the audience guessing and... and uh, keeping it interesting. So, you know, we introduced Deb Whitman here. Um, we introduced, uh, in a more profound way, Miles Warren. I mean, we'd met him already, but, um, you know, you didn't really know him until this episode. And Craven and Calypso and Goliadkin. So, you know, you're trying to constantly sort of keep uh, the audience a little off balance all the time. Indeed, and I actually kind of like the second fight a bit. I do agree it wasn't as good as the first, but there are moments, and, and this is a good thing. This isn't a criticism at all. I mean, when they're tearing up the Museum of Natural History, I kind of cringe a little bit just because this is it's a real place. I go there quite often, so I'm seeing things that I know <laughs> being trashed. Yeah, I, 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 have, I always have really mixed feelings about that. I mean, um... I have in cartoons I've done trashed all sorts of things that, you know, when you stop and think about it as more than just a background um, or a venue that's cool and fun to have a fight in, you're like, oh, my God, look at the damage I'm doing here. Um, you know, whether it's some ancient site in Gargoyles or some uh, a museum uh, or whatever, um, it's just a little bit of like, oh my god, uh, really irresponsible. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I'm doing an action show, so we're gonna, you know, got to break some eggs, I guess. Well, Craven, hyena, what animal themed villain will you have trash the place next? Mm -hmm. 
But yeah, just I mean, and I love the geography. How you, I just love how the fight scenes move from place to place. You keep the geography of the city very consistent. I mean, I won't lie. The first time I watched this, and they flew out of the uh, museum and into the park, I was half expecting Belvedere Castle because it's really close by. I mean, obviously we didn't get there, but we just had a really neat finish with um. I think this is the only time on the show we've seen Spidey take out a supervillain by pretty much beating him in unconscious. Well, I think the idea that didn't come across because the animation didn't really carry it off um, was that, you know, you throw enough webbing at anyone, even a super-powered villain, and that's got to slow you down um, and hamper your ability to fight. You know, even if you've got the claws to cut through it, all that stuff is still sticking to you. And so there's a line of dialogue there where he says, hey, the werewolf thing isn't working, but I'm loving the mummy bit. And the problem, of course, is is that he's not quite as wrapped up in all that webbing visually as you'd like to see. Uh, the line is sort of an indication of what we were intending, but the animation didn't quite pull off. But, you know, so the, the idea a little bit was less about a beating, to be honest, is, um, is that was supposed to be sort of the the finish of exhausting this guy by just tossing so much web um, fluid onto him. And uh, I think it almost comes off, but not quite. Um, It's one of the reasons, like I said, that I don't think the second act battle, second and third act battle works quite as well as the first act battle. Um, Because the idea of it didn't quite come off in the animation as much as I think we would have liked. Um, but, you know, it still works and, you know, uh, you can, you still sort of believe we put him through the, you know, he has had to cut through all this webbing and then, you know, he gets punched out, like you said. Um, so it, it still works. It just doesn't quite work the way, uh, we hoped it would. Well, I still enjoy it. And Peter took a pretty hell of a beating also. I don't think we've seen him that battered. I mean... Mm-hmm after a fight on the show ever, unless I'm misremembering something. But that, yeah. But, but it was still a hell of a fight for him, I do think so. And um, coming back around to Craven, and we touched on this briefly, I think one of the things that felt a little bit off to me about the transformation, not the transformation itself, was I felt for me it was a little bit too sudden. I mean, he went from losing one fight to, and, and being humiliated, I understand that, to willing to maybe permanently alter himself like that. I mean, it's just, I felt like there was a missing step. I mean, bringing it back to Gargoyles, the pack didn't upgrade in their first or even second episode. No, that's true. I mean, we're also trying to indicate some amount of passage of time. Um, you know, uh, Craven says it's weeks of treatments and stuff like that. Um, and you know, it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to show it. Um, Obviously, it's better to show, not tell. It's one of the classic rules of writing. Um, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to claim it's perfect, but I'm still happy with it. I, we felt good about uh, um, putting uh, Craven into his new mode by the, uh, you know, midway through the episode. I didn't have a problem with it, um, and I still don't. It still seems to work for me. Um, 
again, you know, if you look at the the Ultimate Spider-Man model of the character, and I I, I think we did a fairly good job at combining the two versions, um, or at least I'm happy with it, uh, then, you know, you sort of see where that's coming from. I guess like I said, I said I see it. I mean, it was um, it's it, it was like I'm giving it a B plus rather than 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 an A. But um, I still really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the episode, and I, this is still my favorite version of Craven because, like I've said, I've never before this I was never really into him and any of the other mediums, even in the comics. I mean, I always felt in the comics he was really only famous for that one story in the late '80s where he died. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I was more craven than that. Um, I, you know, I I go back and I still think of him as one of Spidey's classic villains and a member of the Sinister Six and all that kind of thing. I, I think of him as a uh, sort of fun deal. We were originally going to put him in episode two of the series, and um, Marvel and uh, Hasbro weren't wild about that idea. Um, I think they had known what we were planning to do with Craven or had a clear sense of it, they might not have objected. But uh, I don't think uh, they said, uh, Marvel said, and I, and I see the logic of it, is that, you know, Spider-Man needs to have some victories for Craven to sort of uh, um, want to hunt him down. Um, and I think that's uh, a legit... Uh, comment. So we moved Craven back to season two and moved Electro uh, up. It made sense. I'm glad with how it turned out. What was Hasbro's objection? I think the toy just didn't jazz him <laughs> until uh, until uh, you know, just a guy with a spear didn't interest them much, but you know, the mutated version of Craven actually did like wasn't their suggestion. It wasn't their idea. Um, that was um, that Cook and I obviously aided and abetted as always by not just the voice actor, but by Sean Galloway. Um, but uh, I think once they saw what we were doing with Craven, they did get interested in the character. But I think initially they just thought he wasn't uh, visually interesting enough to sell toys with. I think I know why back in uh, the 90s, as I recall, when I would go into a Toys R Us or KB, there was the 90s cartoon Craven figure who was just a guy with a spear, and that figure sat on shelves for years. Really. Um, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't pretend to always understand that business. Um, it seems, you know, rife with inconsistencies and, and stuff like that, but uh, they... Clearly weren't interested in the character. Marvel had its objections, um, and Marvel's objections seemed very reasonable. And, um, and uh, but yeah, he was the. There were two villains who were going to be in season one that weren't. Um, one was Kingpin because we weren't allowed to use him, and the other was uh, Kraven because we were asked to just push him back so that Spider-Man. Um, could have been brought to his attention a little more, and um, and I think that was legit, so we did. And it worked out, and definitely. And yeah, I know about toy companies 
logic, quote-unquote, I remember this document he posted that Kenner sent to you back in the 90s when you were developing Gargoyles, and some of their suggestions were, I'm going to be polite and say, out there. Yeah, I mean, there's just different agendas between doing a cartoon and doing a, a toy property, and sometimes those agendas work together really well, and sometimes they don't. Um, and ultimately, if you're producing a show, you've got to do what's best for the show, um, but it doesn't hurt to keep in mind what's paying for the show. Um, and so, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to be enemies with the toy company. You've got to find a way to, to make it work um, if that's where the money for the show is coming from. So, uh, you make it work, um, but you still try to maintain your integrity on the property on the show as a whole. You blow up the hel- the uh, motorcycle before the end of the first act. <laughs> Sorry. I don't think most people will get that one, but the right people will. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, actually, I thought the action figure line was pretty neat. Obviously, they never made Craven. They didn't get into the season two characters, which is a shame. I mean, I bought all of them. It was a... The first wave wasn't so great, but afterwards, they started knocking them out of the park, I thought. And I have a big memory that we did make Craven. Am I just making that up? Are you sure there was no Craven? There was no Craven, no. The last ones out of the gate were Vulture, Shocker, and a Doc Ock that was on model. Hmm. Okay. Well, good. I mean, good that we got those three at least. Um, Yeah, but the first... I have a vague memory of Craven. I can picture it, and yet I guess it's possible I just... uh, conflated things in my head. It's, God knows my brain is Swiss cheese. So um, Maybe they showed you a prototype and then they ended up not making it. Anything's possible. Mm-hmm. It's so long ago. Yeah, definitely. And um, it doesn't feel like that long ago sometimes, but it was it was a good episode, a good show, fun action figure line, like I said, just said. And um, is there anything else left to cover about this episode? You know, there's a little thing I been meaning to bring up, I can't remember if we brought it up last time, um, but I was just reminded that in season, in watching it last night, that in season two in the opening title... Yes, I had a note on that. Yeah, you know, we shifted, you know, in season one, it was always the same faces, and so we can nice. talk about season two, and it's like, can we get, you know, uh, when we were in post, can we get... Um, a number of different images of our characters because I was feeling like our supporting cast was so great and so iconic um, in and of themselves. You don't even count the supervillains, just uh, the, you know, the people in Peter's life. And, and so what I would do for each episode is look and see who had the most lines not counting Peter or the villain. Um, and then the three characters who had mm-hmm. the most lines and or the most significant you know, role in the in the show, they would get the three, you know, character slots in the main titles. So this time it was Gwen, Liz, and Flash. Um, and that just, for me, was fun. It's sort of a little hint if you were paying attention as to who was going to be important in the episode. Um, but also just, it really served to showcase, I think, what we were feeling, which was that we had this amazing supporting cast of characters in Peter's life. And so the ability to sort of feature them a little more and not just always use the same uh, 
uh, three, and we got a new one of Gwen so that with the slightly longer hair, and um, and it was uh, so to me that was just a little fun touch that we threw in that I I kind of liked. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember the first time I saw it back when the. Season two premiered back in uh, 2009, and I'm watching the intros as usual. I'm like, uh-huh, and then it was character cards that we've seen already, and then there was Norman Osborn there. I'm like, whoa, what the hell is he doing there? Yeah, so, you know, it was just a way to, again, more value added, relatively cheap to do. We just had to do, you know, like I said, I can't remember exactly how many there were, but we sort of figured it out, how many characters we'd need across the back 13 episodes and to have three per thing. But since we were fo- always focusing on who had the most um, screen time or lines or whatever, um, you know, it wasn't about literally having to do one for like Seymour O'Reilly or something like that. Who's yeah. got, well, you never see in this episode, but he's got a few lines. <laughs> uh, that was Steve. And, Bloom, right? uh, what? That was Steve, right? Yeah. Steve. Bloom, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always thought those title cards were really neat. I remember for The Last Gathering, I put together a music video. I don't know if you remember this. It was actually a small tribute to you where I combined Spec, Spidey, and Gargoyle as the two intros. And when we got to the part of the Spidey intro where the title cards would come up, I had all the title cards he had on the show, and I had a friend of mine Photoshop cards like that for all the Gargoyles characters as well as Xanatos and Demona. <laughs> So, you know, it's fun. It's just a little extra, you know, you try and give the audience uh, things to hang their hats on and things to obsess over and things to just have fun with. So uh, that was just a fun way to do that. Indeed, and it was a great addition, and and it kept me paying more attention to the intro each week than otherwise would have, and this is not me talking down about the intro, I love the intro, it's just that when you see it the same thing every week, you're like, okay, I can zone out a little bit. Yeah, or fast forward through it or whatever, and that's the idea, is that you want to get your audience feeling like they need to pay attention to every second of your show. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had some fun with that. So it's fun. And I think that about wraps things up. Greg, do you have anything you would like to promote? Uh, well, you know, as always, I am uh, happy to promote my novels, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam, and in particular, the Reign of the Ghosts audio play, which you can now get uh, on uh, Amazon, Audible, iTunes, ACX, um, as well as gumroad.com. Um, so look for Reign of the Ghosts audio uh, play. Um, it's got an incredible cast, including, of course, many actors from Spectacular Spider-Man, Josh Keaton, Vanessa Marshall, um, and others, um, Steve Bloom. Uh, and uh, we, I also have uh, the novel World of Warcraft Traveler out, which I'm really proud of. I'm, uh, I'm in the process of uh, doing a quick uh, second draft revision on the second novel in the Traveler series, so um, that'll be out next November, but the first novel's already out. Uh, it's it, um, it's a lot of fun, and so I hope people get that. Um, and otherwise, uh, Captain Adam, uh, miniseries that I co-plotted with Carrie Bates, uh, 
as a sort of rebirth-adjacent part of DC Comics' uh, new line. Um, it's called The Fall and Rise of Captain Adam. It's a six-issue miniseries that I that we're really proud of, illustrated by Will Conrad. Um, then, you know, there's still episodes of Shimmer and Shine coming out, but um, for the most part, uh, my animation work uh, obviously is all focused on Young Justice right now, and that will be out for quite some time. You hear that, people? The keep the uh, keep engine Young Justice hashtag worked. Hashtags can work. And while we're on that subject, hashtag we want Gargoyles comics. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> that'd be really so. great. Oh, actually, hashtag Disney. We want Gargoyles twenty one ninety eight. That'd be well, better. I, I wouldn't push that. I mean, again, I wouldn't split the focus. You know, uh, to me, I think uh, if you try and ask for too many things at once, then you've got some fans asking for one thing and some fans asking for another thing. Um, to me, the reason we had success in getting Young Justice back was because of the focus of the campaign. Um, and once you start splitting that focus, it becomes very difficult. Yeah, no, I wasn't actually being serious about that one, but I do agree. Hashtag, we want Gargoyles Comics. And Greg, uh, once again, I would like to thank you for joining us again. As always, we're partway into Season 2. I actually see a finish line coming up in a year or so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll talk to you soon, Greg. Take it easy. Yeah, you too. And And once again, fans, thank you for listening. from mother russia by way of mother africa two moms and still so ill behaved 